Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 3rd Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. Would you guys pray with me once more? Lord Jesus, it is a privilege to come before you. It's a privilege to uh, collectively as a body attempt to hide your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you. And Lord, when the voices of our world are loud and uh, the thoughts of our heart are many, that you would send forth your light and your truth and you would lead us to your holy hill where we'll be before God our exceeding joy. So Lord, as we submit ourselves to your word, which is light and truth, to see Christ who is the light and the truth, we ask that you bring us exceeding joy, joy that comes from surrendering our hearts and our minds to you and your truth and your purpose for our lives. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. So today, we are returning back to our study, working through the Gospel of Luke. And if you uh, haven't been with us this new year, I'm going to give you a a quick uh, recap of what you've missed. And the Gospel of Luke is one of the four accounts of Jesus' life we have in Scripture. And it's called the Gospel because Gospel simply means good news. And it contains the good news of what Jesus did to save sinners and restore us to God. And The gospel of Luke is no different than the gospel of Jesus. It's simply an account of Jesus' life, just like the account of Matthew, of Mark, and of John. It was different because it's written by a man named Luke, who was first and foremost, as we saw, a historian. He was a doubter. He was a skeptic who put himself to the task of interviewing individuals, of putting together what he called an orderly account. He traveled with the early church. He reconciled many voices. But the reason why he wrote the book of Luke was not simply to introduce Jesus to a new audience. Even though at the end of Luke's second volume, the book of Acts, the good news of Jesus has gone to the world. But actually the purpose of Luke writing this book was writing to those who had faith in Jesus Christ, yet due to external circumstances and internal doubts, they were beginning to wrestle with their faith. He wrote this, as we saw in Luke 1.4, so that those who are believers may have certainty regarding the things that are taught. In an anxious world with ever-changing identity markers, here is God's work through the Holy Spirit to bring you confidence into who you are by stressing who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for lost and lonely sinners. While we looked at the birth narrative before we took a break, we pick up today with something our modern hearts love, and that is an exclusive story. Out of the four gospel accounts we have here in the book of Luke, the only account of such. It occurs nowhere else in scripture. And in this, we learn not only the tenacity of the historian Luke, who got these intimate details assumedly from Jesus's own mother, Mary, but we actually learn much about who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. And where the other gospels begin, like Luke did with the birth of Jesus, they then kind of hit fast forward and get into Jesus's ministry as an adult. What we get today is an exclusive glimpse into Jesus's childhood. Jesus in this story today is 12 years old. How how many 12-year-olds do we have in here today? Any 12-year-olds? None? No 12-year-olds? All right, right there. We've got got some 12-year-olds. All right. So Jesus 
was just like the two of you in every respect. That's what the author of Hebrews says. As you think about your lives and your challenges and your ability to obey your parents and obey Jesus, Jesus was right there with you, though he wasn't obeying himself. He was obeying, as we'll see today, God the Father, theology matters. And so he was just like you. But in another way, he was different than you. And it's both that similarity and that dissimilarity that Luke wants us to encounter today because not only was Jesus the son of Mary and Joseph, like you guys are the sons of your parents, but he was also the son of God. This might seem a little disappointing that here we have this exclusive hot take story, the first words of Jesus in the gospel of Luke, and yet the scintillating news, this sneak peek merely reveals the fact that Jesus is the son of God. I'm not sure what your background is with the church, but this is probably not a new idea to you. The idea that Jesus is the son of God or that God is referred to as God the father is probably common for many of us. And yet, it's significant enough that of all the data Luke the historian gathered, this was the story important enough to be included here. And while this story might not give you any information you don't think is new, what it does tell you is the significance of what you already know in the truth that Jesus is the Son of God. We're entering a portion of Luke's gospel, which concludes here in about a month, where Luke is unearthing Jesus's messianic identity and his purpose. And the first thing Luke wants us to see, the first words out of Jesus's mouth, want you to see the significance of Jesus's relationship with his father. And that's gonna be our big point today. Today, we are gonna see that we cannot understand who Jesus is apart from his relationship to the father. We cannot understand who Jesus is apart from his relationship to the Father. And what might seem simple and obvious is profound, not only to how Jesus understood himself, but profound to your own life. And we're gonna see all of this today by seeing what will be our first point, which we'll spend the longest amount of time in, and that is Jesus's sonship in the perspective of the gospel. We'll also take little uh, applying views at the end, and we'll see Jesus's sonship from the perspective of parenting, and Jesus' sonship from the perspective of salvation. But before we get into those things, to set the stage once more, I want you to just hear, for the second time today, this account from Luke chapter 2, verses 39 through 52. And when they, that's Mary and Joseph, had performed everything according to the law, which was the last scene we saw in the temple, the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. And then they began to search for them among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? 
Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. So as you've heard this story now for the second time this morning, perhaps you've picked up on the tension that seems to undergird this entire account. There is an innate tug and pull, isn't there, between Jesus and his relationship with his heavenly father and Jesus and his relationship with his earthly parents. And it's because of this tension that we need to stop at first and understand our first perspective today, which is understanding Jesus's sonship in the perspective of the gospel. If the good news is what Luke wants us to have certainty regarding, he here wants us to know what Jesus has done. That's the point of his book. But he also wants us to know who Jesus is. To not know who Jesus is with clarity is to actually not have clarity on the good news which Luke is giving. If Jesus could be copied and pasted with any of us or any figure from Christian history, the goodness of that news is significantly altered. Who Jesus is is one of the most important questions when it comes to the hope you have in the gospel. Is Jesus just a good teacher, an exemplary man? a cultural revolutionary? Is Jesus a God sent down from heaven? Is Jesus half God, half man? These might seem like theological questions that have no ramifications on our life, but these are important questions because your answer to those questions shape the direction of the good news. And this is a relevant question if you've ever sat down and you've talked to a Muslim or Jehovah's Witness or a theologically progressive Christian. In fact, in the first few hundred years after Jesus lived, one of the primary challenges to those who wanted to leave Christianity was them failing to wrestle with the identity of Jesus as scripture actually presents it. They miss the tension that Luke holds in this account And instead, they fall to one side or the other in their understanding of who Jesus is. To use uh, some superhero analogies, some people saw Jesus as a hero like Thor. I had seen so few Marvel movies, and then I got COVID. And so now I'm cool as of like 2018. So I have a little more context for these. And I'm going to talk about Batman in a little bit. I understand he's not Marvel, okay? Just want to get that out there. Um, Because some people are like, that's not Marvel. I know. Um, But anyway, they, they view Jesus like Thor. And that is that he is the son of a God and he came to earth and he looked human and he worked on behalf of humans and he helped humans. But at the end of the day, he wasn't a human. He was God. And this perspective understands Jesus' divine sonship, but neglects Jesus' human sonship. Or it is perhaps the more common heresy today is to understand Jesus like a hero, like Batman, or Iron Man. They exemplify the hero par excellence. They have all the tools, all the skills, and they go out there and fight and do all their good crime-fighting things. But behind the mask and under the suit, 
is a human. They might have more tools, more access, more cash than any of us. But at the end of the day, they are just like us. This perspective, also wrong, emphasizes Jesus' human sonship, but neglects his divine sonship. But what Luke holds up here in tension is this reality of Jesus that is both fully man and fully God, born of God and born of man. Two aspects which shape our understanding not only of who Jesus is, but of what he came to do, which is relevant for those who need Jesus. And this is the first perspective we see today in the gospel perspective of Jesus, and that is that Jesus was a real boy with real parents. That's very clear in this text. Uh, What we already know about Jesus up until this point is that Jesus was born of Mary while she was still a virgin. We saw this account in Luke chapter one back in December where we read this. And Mary said to the angel who said she will conceive, she says, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So the origin story of Jesus is unlike any of our origin stories while being like all of our origin stories. He was born of a woman just like any of us. But he was born not of a woman and a male father, but he was born of a woman and of the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was unique but Jesus was no less a real boy. If you're familiar with the story of Pinocchio, you know there's this puppet that gets enlivened to look and act and talk and think like a real boy. But every time he says, I'm a real boy, his nose grows to indicate that he's lying. Just remember, Jesus is not like Pinocchio. When Pinocchio looks real and talks real and acts real, for the majority of his history, he's lying. But Jesus is a real boy. In fact, did you notice Luke's distinct emphasis that you would understand that today? Look at verses 40 and 52. Verse 40 of chapter two says, and the child, that's Jesus, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And then look at where Luke lands the plane in verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God And man, Jesus grew. And he grew in a number of ways. If you look at those two verses, he grew in stature, that is to say in size. He grew in strength. He grew in wisdom. He grew in the favor or the grace of God. Those are that that same word can be translated both ways in the book of Luke. And why did Jesus grow in these things? Because that's what boys do. That's what little girls do. Jesus, the eternal second person of the Trinity, when he took on flesh, even took on the constraint of time itself. He grew slowly over time like the rest of us. If you're a little kid in here and you look at the other kids who can run and jump faster than you, you know how you want to be able to do that now. And you get frustrated that you can't reach the cookies. But you know that your savior, Jesus, wrestled with all of that slow growth. If you're a believer in here, maybe you're a new believer. 
And you see all those other believers who have been walking with God for five or 15 or 50 years and you say, man, they obey so much better. Jesus grew over time in his favor with God, though he was not sinless. Or, sorry, throw rocks at me. Jesus was sinless, okay? Uh, He grew over time, but remained sinless in the midst of it. But he learned obedience as he went on. And that's kind of the astounding thing in this text. Here we see that Jesus grew in favor or grace with God. Now, this is pretty astonishing, and this is where we need good theology. We need to read the whole of the Bible to understand the Bible at all. And that is that while in eternity past, the Son of God always and only enjoyed fellowship and pleasure with the Father and with the Spirit. It wasn't until the Son of God was incarnate and given the name Jesus by the angels and then by his parents that he had to obey as a human in the flesh. Look at how the author of Hebrews puts this. In Hebrews 5, verse 8, speaking of Jesus, he says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. You see, in eternity past, the will of the triune Godhead was undivided and in unison with everything they did. There was no, this is the will of the Spirit, this is the will of the Son, this is the will of the Father. They collectively exercised that will in perfect harmony. But when Jesus took on flesh for the first time in eternity past, the Son of God had to obey as a human. He had to obey in accordance with the law, which meant that every day Jesus woke up as a human boy and every day he refused to sin against God, his father. He was proving himself faithful to pass the test of perfect obedience, which had to be passed only by a human. Why? Why could Jesus not have just zoomed in as fully God and nothing else and been some holographic manifestation? Because Jesus didn't need to die for the sins of a God. He needed to die for the sins of humanity. He needed to be the perfect human that we failed to be. So as Jesus faces, and we'll see these in the next few weeks, increasing trials, the Father's favor and pleasure grew because at every point, Jesus proved that he was better than Adam, better than Abraham, better than David, better than you, better than me. He was the faithful, sinless substitute that broken sinners needed. And this real boy who really obeyed had real parents. Here are Mary and Joseph. Getting a gl- we get a glimpse into parenting Jesus in the first century. And what a beautiful hope for anyone who has ever been a parent that even though Jesus had real parents, his parents really lost the Messiah. Now in fairness, Luke kind of goes out of his way to make us know that it wasn't anybody's fault in particular. The Passover feast was the largest festival on the Jewish calendar and family uh, clans would caravan from wherever they were to Jerusalem. It was common in that day that the women and children would go in the front and the men would go in the back and that's how they would journey. But Jesus was in this wonderfully in-between stage. He was a 12-year-old. And that meant that at 13, 
It's when the Jewish boys would have their bar mitzvah and they would go from being a boy to being a man. They would participate in the Passover feast, not as someone who is under their family, but as their own man responding to their faithful Lord. And so it was traditional for 12-year-old boys to be given more privileges at the Passover this year. They could go and participate in things as like a trial run, being on their own. And so it would have been reasonable for Jesus at some times to identify with the smaller children during the feast and reasonable at other times for him to be in a different place with the young men, which meant for Mary in this caravan going home, she would have thought, man, Joseph and Jesus are in the back having this great coming of age father-son moment throwing around the first century pigskin. And Jesus, or in, and Joseph is talking to his buddies, talking about how Jesus is so good at playing with his friends up in the front with Mary. And yet at some point, the two of them have those parenting antenna that go up and they're like, we forgot something. And it was actually Jesus. Jesus stayed behind while his parents left. But here's more tension. That is because Jesus was a real boy with real parents. He was really responsible to honor and obey his parents. And this is a pretty astounding thing to think about in this text. Jesus was the eternal son of God who prior to 12 years ago only knew the perfect father in all of his glory. And yet despite this divine identity, he's needed to bear with weak and limited parents in an honorable and obedient way. If there's one thing, all of us have been kids, all of us know kids, and if there's one thing that often keeps kids from obeying their parents, it's the thought that their parents just don't understand them. They don't know what's going on or that parents don't know what's best for them. And here on full display are two parents who do not understand, (laughs) who do not know in this moment what's best for them. And the king of kings who could have rightfully said, shame on you, you ignorant parents, ended up in the end, verse 51, listening, being submissive, and going with them. And so kids who are in here, I want you to take note of your big brother, Jesus Christ. Jesus in this story did know better. Jesus knew Mary and Joseph did not understand what he understood. But because Jesus trusted his heavenly father, he willingly obeyed his human parents, even when they didn't get the full picture. And in those moments when you know mom and dad might not have the clearest picture of what's going on, they didn't, he did not obey and trust his parents. He obeyed and trusted his heavenly father, knowing that that obedience was ultimately for his good. He wasn't trusting his parents who at some level would disappoint him. He was trusting his heavenly father who would never disappoint him. He knew the truth the apostle Paul gives us in reciting the the fifth commandment in Ephesians chapter six, where it says, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother for this is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. This honor and obedience given to earthly parents is part of your perfect father's plan for your good. And here Jesus, who had every right to say, you're wrong, trusted in God, and at the end, 
willingly and sinlessly submitted to them. And this scene is helpful for us to understand this tension. Because the tension in this text is not because Jesus is sinful. The tension in this text isn't about Jesus' sin, because there was none. The tension in this text is about Jesus' sonship, because there were competing identities, wasn't there? Jesus was the son of Joseph, who needed to honor and obey him. But Jesus was also the son of God, and he needed to honor and obey him. And this is where we see that in light of being a real boy with real parents, Jesus understood his divine identity and his divine mission. Jesus understood his divine identity and his divine mission. Read with me verses 46 through 50. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. So here as Mary and Joseph are packing up the family camel, Jesus stuck around in the temple to hear scriptures read and explained and to engage in this dialogue which typically followed the Passover in Jerusalem. And he did this because Jesus knew he needed to be there. In fact, that's what Jesus says in Luke. He says, do you not know that I must be there? Why? Because Jesus knew who his father was. It's really important for us to understand because we see Jesus twice in this passage growing in wisdom. Jesus didn't come out of the womb and invent the first Tesla car. Jesus created, we know through Colossians 1, Jesus created the world. Jesus knew everything because he put it together. He sustains it. And yet when he was born, he's not like, guys, watch this. This is called the LED light bulb. It's gonna be amazing. He lived inside of that time. In fact, look at what Paul says in Philippians 2 about this divine mystery of Jesus being in the flesh, verses five through seven. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. To a degree that we cannot understand, Jesus set aside aspects of his divinity while in the flesh and accepted specific limitations of being a man. The son who in eternity past never slept, needed to sleep. The son who in eternity past never needed to eat, needed to eat. The son who in eternity past was omnipresent and everywhere sustaining creation was in one place at one time. The son who created the trees had to be taught by his father Joseph how to cut one down and make a table out of it. And while Jesus gave up in the flesh the free exercise of some of his divine attributes, Jesus could not give up knowledge of his father. Even as Jesus, as an infant, was held in the arms of his adopted father, he had an awareness of his heavenly father. 
Jesus knew the Father from birth because Jesus could not anymore stop knowing the Father than water could stop being wet. You see, I could have died when my son was born. He could have never met me, but it would not change the fact that he is my son because he was born of me. But since Jesus as the son of God was not born by God the Father, but instead eternally proceeded from God the Father, his status of sonship has nothing to do with biological beginnings, but instead it is a relational awareness of his union with the Father. The Son cannot stop knowing the Father, and the Father cannot stop being Father to the Son. And this is really important, not only for what is called Christology, which is our our view of Jesus, a theology of Christ, it's important for us. Because right after this, in Luke chapter three, John the Baptist is going to criticize the Pharisees who boast that God is their father. And John says, you have no idea who your father is. You have no idea what it looks like to be a child of God. But this 12-year-old boy knew the father. He knew God the Father because he was God the Son. And it's most likely this faithful understanding of who he was and who the Father was that contributed to his amazing answers in the temple that day. And you see, if you understand how God is Father and how he cares for his children, you understand the whole scope of scriptural revelation. (laughs) This is a story of a loving father who goes to a broken creation to redeem it and make, it, make his creation his children again through the work of his son. This is a book about relational connections with our father God. And in this day and age, no one else got it. But Jesus did. And it was astounding to see. Over this portion, these next few passages, which will end um, in the end of Luke, or in the middle of Luke chapter th- 4, Luke wants us to see the significance of Jesus' relationship with his Father and Jesus' relationship with the Spirit as the basis for all of Jesus' ministry and all of Jesus' reconciliation, which follows. You see, it was not necessary for Jesus to know the cure for cancer, to be our Redeemer. It was not necessary for Jesus to have nail-proof skin to be our Savior, It was not necessary for Jesus to be adored in the flesh by the kings of the world to be our king, but it was necessary for Jesus to be keenly aware of his relationship with the Father if he were to walk in faithfulness as our substitute. For apart from God the Father, we can do nothing. The most important thing Jesus wanted you to know in the book of Luke, the first thing out of his mouth is an admission and the tension which would follow that he was the son of man and the son of God. Both together, conversation stops and we take God at his word. To give you a a chiefly historical example of what this looks like, there's this great identity statement in human history. It says, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. This statement communicates identity. He is Inigo Montoya, the son of his father. But it also communicates a purpose that I'm going to avenge him, that my identity shapes my action. Jesus' statement is not only that of identity, but it's actually one of purpose and his divine mission. Look back at verses 48 and 49. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. 
And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? So if you're reading in your Bible, you'll notice that after the word house, there's a little footnote in there. And that's because in the Greek syntax, the word house is not actually in this sentence. In fact, the most literal reading of the sentence reads something like, do you not know that I must be in my father's? And that is father's in a possessive sense, not in a multiple father's plural sense. And so translators have added the word house here because he's in something that the father possesses. And here he's in the temple. And it's not a far stretch to see that. I think that's a fair rendering of what Jesus is communicating But the heart of the Greek that's in that text, and perhaps if you've got another translation, maybe the NASB or NIV, they render it, do you not know that I must be about my father's business? Or I must be about my father's purpose? You see, because he understood his identity in relationship to the father, he understood his purpose and his action in light of that. He came to the father's house, not only because he knew who he was, the son of God, but he knew what he was called to be. That was to be about the Lord's business. He knew that he was to continue to grow in wisdom, in favor, in perfect obedience, because that is why he was sent. He was sent to be the substitute savior for those who didn't know the father. And it's this distinction which introduces the tension into this scene. As we saw, it wasn't Jesus's sinful disobedience to his parents, which leads to this tug and pull, It was his obedience to his heavenly parent which introduced the tension. And Jesus gives a statement here that sounds really harsh, but he wasn't rebuking his parents for not caring. He's not surprised that his parents care about him, but instead it was a statement of what his parents should have expected from him. But you can imagine the jarring nature this would have been for Mary and Joseph, right? You see, apart from the birth events, which happened over a decade ago, it appears that they've settled into what is a fairly ordinary life for a normal Jewish family. And this event brought a new strain, a new purpose in their son, which was most likely absent for the past decade. What was always there was now becoming distinctly visible. And as the book of Luke goes on, we're going to see Jesus say that for all who follow him, For all who follow this radical allegiance to God the Father, it will at times strain relationships with families and friends. That's not because conversion to the Father eliminates relationships. It's not because we love conflict and seek it out. It's not because we become narrow-minded and exclusive, but it's because our new relationship with God the Father provides a greater obligation and motivation than any other human relationship. To live for the purpose of God, to be about the Father's business, to long for the Father's house, is to not live for the purpose, the mission, and the house of the world. And this introduces an innate conflict of interest when other people are interested in something and interest in the gospel is something else. And there was a conflict of interest in this passage between Jesus and his father and Joseph as Jesus's father. Jesus, in the author- his authority was the will of his heavenly father. And in following the will of his heavenly father, it at times was a conflict of interest with the will of Joseph, his earthly father. And as tense as this moment was, and as much potential as there was, have you guys ever been that moment with a kid 
where you, you realize the potential energy in that room is rising. <laughs> that what you say next is going to determine what the next 48 hours in your house looks like. This text is ripe with that tension. But at the end is not an explosion of anger or frustration. But look at what Mary takes away in verse 51. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. She treasured this moment. What did she treasure? Specifically, Jesus' words, his rhema. And the message of Jesus being set to the business of the Father was a joyful but weighty realization for Mary. Jesus working and committed as the Son of God in action was a new thing that invaded Mary's comfortable, safe life. But even in her lack of full understanding that we saw in verse 50, it was a marvelous thing to her. And this is where an application, I want to press two perspectives of Jesus' sonship into our lives a bit more. And first and briefly, I want to show its application in parenting. Parent or not, to be involved in the church is to be thinking these kind of thoughts. Because as a church family, specifically as members who have covenanted together, we are called to come alongside those who are parenting their children and to help them. Or Lord willing, God might call you to be a parent at some point in your life. And so here we see that we need to glean some things from this because we see Jesus' sonship in the perspective of parenting. How does Jesus as God's son treat the way we treat our, or change the way we treat our own children? And the primary thing we see in this text is a perspective of parenting humility and parenting trust. Mary's treasuring at the end is so significant and Luke often drops these breadcrumbs for us and here's what he's trying to do. He's saying, do you treasure it? When Mary's treasuring something, don't we often just get in a groove of reading scripture and we just read it through? But these are like little irritants that Luke drops and he says, she's treasuring it. Do you, do, do you know what she's treasuring? Do you see the marvel of this? Do you see the wonder of it? Do you know what was so beautiful to captivate Mary's heart in this moment of distinct tension? Let's think about it. If I were Joseph or you were Mary, I'd perhaps have a sense of frustration and bitterness at the end of this. Because here... God had so chosen to entrust you out of all the humans in human history. He entrusted Mary and Joseph to care for Jesus, the savior of humanity. And despite your best attempts to keep him safe and to provide for him and to care for him, he didn't do something as simple as look around and see where his parents were going. And then you find him after three days and he don't meet Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm so scared. I'm so glad you've come back. Instead, he's like, what do you mean? I was always with my father. You see, if parenting goals are about ease, simple obedience, and a stress-free family life, <laughs> encounters like this will always leave you frustrated and disappointed. But Mary treasured these things because she understood the weighty privilege of allowing her son as disjarring, disrupting, and disorienting as it was to follow the calling of his heavenly father as the chief priority in life. 
Parents, we parent our children to the plan and purpose of God, not to the plan and purpose of what seems most pain-free, safe, or satisfying to us. There will perhaps be times in your parenting where your kids grow up and their desire to obey God is different than the desire and plans you have for their life. Perhaps you always wanted them to pursue the options you didn't have as a kid, to pursue the same career path you did and take over the family business, to live in your town forever, but they feel that they can best serve the purpose of God by studying this skill or going to this place and doing this thing to meet this need. My wife often told my son that he could pick any career path except for military, police, or fire. (laughs) Why? Because as a good mom, she wants to see her son be safe. But it's brought real discussions into our home where we ask ourselves the question, would we rejoice? Would we treasure? If God called our children to be missionaries, evangelists, or disciple makers in the Ukraine, in Iran, in North Korea, in Mexico, would we rejoice if at the end of the day you get to see your grandkids less? have a little bit less financial security, a little less frequent contact, but at the same time, see your kids living for the glory and purpose of their king. Parents, are you parenting your kids like God by parenting them to God, giving them a vision for life that's bigger than blood of kin, but has been surrendered to the blood of Christ? Would you be bold enough to treasure that? and trust God with your kids. We love John's words in 3 John 4 where he says, I have no greater joy than knowing that my children are walking in the truth. But are you willing to trust your children with your heavenly father if it means getting less as their earthly father? Are you humble enough to say, see him, see his glory, See his need, and you are free to give yourself to that business. May we see our parenting of our children be changed as distinct from this world, not because we're most concerned about protecting them from what is hard, but we're most concerned in supporting them in what is heavenly. You see, Mary didn't know the depth of what Jesus meant, but what she knew is whatever relationship Jesus had with his heavenly father, it was beautiful. It was wonderful. It was comforting in this moment of pain and tension. And it's this sense of security and wonder which leads us to our final point this morning. And that's Jesus's sonship in the perspective of salvation. Jesus was a real boy with real parents who he really loved. And because the author of Hebrews tells us that he was made in every way like us, tempted in every way as you have been tempted, and fully able to sympathize with us, I imagine that Jesus was aware of this tension. That he knew mom and dad were struggling with this. That they were upset with him. And in his flesh... He probably knew 
that he could have avoided all of this tension by just going with them. But he was so captivated, so compelled, and so controlled by this need to be with his heavenly father that all of the tension he knowingly would walk through would be worth it because he was with his father. He knew that to be with God the father is to have peace in disquieting times. As Jesus' testing increases in these next few weeks, which culminates with him being tested in the desert after 40 days by Satan himself with the thing that, is, that would level any of us, that is the return of glory and fellowship with God. What gives Jesus the motivation he needs? What gives him the greatest hope and the greatest comfort, the greatest confidence? is a keen awareness of his identity as God the Son and the pleasure he has with God the Father. When we follow Jesus, we follow in his steps. We will experience moments of tension with those closest to us, those at work, and those in our world, but do you realize that you have access to this Father and this house through this Son? In fact, this is why Jesus set his hand to the Father's business. Look at what John says in John chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What has Jesus come to do? To win sinners by faith back to God, who is their father. What sustained Jesus in moments of tension like this and moments of pain as critical and as keenly pressing as the cross which would kill him was knowing the Father's pleasure in him. As astounding as it may seem, when Jesus wrought with distress, Jesus talks about the distress of the cross in, later on in Luke, wrought with distress in prayer before the passion in John 17, he prays for the souls of all of his disciples that they would find soul-restoring, joy-producing, conflict-crushing, wound-washing peace, not that is common here, but that was common in the Trinity for all eternity. The peace, the comfort, the identity, what Jesus left to save us, he is not going to alone, but he desires to bring all with him through faith and hope. You see, there will always be tension in your life. You can match the identity markers of the world, but wait five hours and they will change. There will always be tension with your kids. You give them what they want now and they will want something else later. There will always be tension with your spouses because we are broken sinners. But here in being restored to the Father through the Son is the affirmation of tension with the world, but peace with our Father. Can you imagine that peace? Can you imagine the change that brings, not in only understanding who you are in Jesus Christ, but in how you live in this Father's house? Well, through faith, it is not an exercise of thought, but an exercise of the heart. 
And for those who feel far off, I want you to consider this story once more. Because what is most clearly seen in this passage is Jesus, the Son of God. But when we zoom out a little bit more, we see a story of those searching for Jesus. Mary and Joseph are in extreme discomfort and anxiety because of what they've lost. Our family lost our dog for a few hours a couple weeks ago. I had to talk to distraught children about what life would be like going to bed that night without the dog, seeing the fear grip their hearts, not mine, theirs. It was real. But here Mary and Joseph are in total emotional disrepair. The word for distress is the strongest word Luke could have used because they have misplaced not only their son, but they have misplaced the hope of the world. And for many of us, there may be moments in your lostness that cause you to feel that same emotional despair. And perhaps even you turn to familiar faces of family and friends and refreshment and fame and sex, all these familiar places you turn to and you just find the distress to be increasing and that you cannot find what you're looking for. But what we see in this text is that you and me, when we wander on past our king, can always know where to find him. He is in the Father's house doing the Father's purpose. And today that doesn't lead us to a temple It leads us to Jesus Christ who has ascended to the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, who says, come to me, repent and turn back. Whether you have walked beyond him for a day, three days or 30 years, the way back is clear. Turn back and come to Jesus. Consider the joyful words of the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 55 verses five and six, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Dear church, Jesus is the son of God and that is our hope that we too might have access to the Father through the Son. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning and the unifying effect your blood has on us, we ask that you make us to know the significance of being one with the Father through the Son and filled with the Spirit. I pray that each of us would know where we might find Christ our brother in the flesh and Christ our king in the spirit. That the way back is the way of repentance and the way forward is the way of submission and everything in between is a life of faithful trust. We pray all of this to shape our parenting, to shape our conversations, to shape our hopes and identities in your precious name. Amen.